Today's episode of The Amazing Nerd Show is brought to you by HelloFresh. Listeners, do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your front door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Now, Christian, one of the reasons I love HelloFresh so much is I love their variety. But I'm not going to lie, last week, I must have had the old school barbecue pork Slappy Joe's three dinners in a row with the pickled onions and the potato wedges with the Chipotle ranch. It's just delicious comfort food done right. Well, you know me, I've always enjoyed a hot bowl of soup, so I've been trying a bunch of options. Most recently, their Italian wedding soup with meatballs, simply amazing. So listeners, go to our link in our show notes and get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. That's HelloFresh, the recipe for deliciousness. Nerds, it's time to suit up and nerd up. Launching badass rockabilly track. Now loading horrifying error. Rebooting systems. Warning systems corrupted. New protocols installed. Now time to end the world with some wrestling, video games, movies, TV, and more. Preparing our listeners for ritualistic sacrifice in 3, 2, Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is David. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, Christian, it's finally here. Happy Horror Month. Happy Horror Month, David. Uh, We'll go ahead and get into the details of everything that we have planned for this month, but man, I'm just so ready for Halloween this year. Now that like things are more open, you know, compared to like last year's just depressing COVID mess. Uh, I feel like I've got like two years to actually make up for it at this point. So <laughs> you but, didn't like your Halloween drive-by? Oh my god, that was so depressing. <laughs> my daughter like dressed up in her costume, sitting in the back seat, like with the window open, and people just like handing her candy like cautiously <laughs> through the window uh-huh. as we drive by slowly in a, in a giant parking lot. Yeah, no, that was sad. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm super exhausted today. Um, we're setting up all our yard decorations. I'm, I'm actually kind of behind right now. Um, I've got a little cold going. And then last night, like a dumbass, I decided to go ahead and start watching Mike Flanagan's uh, new Netflix series, Midnight Mass, at like 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just thinking, oh, I'll watch one episode, you know, before I go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, it's like 4.30 like, in the morning, and I'm like still like wide awake, you know, wanting to watch more and just like having to force myself to go to bed. Uh, I'll probably do a full review at some point. I'm about like halfway through. It's only like six or seven episodes, but I'm just loving it so far. Um, you know, it's written and directed by Mike Flanagan, like I said, uh, who's definitely like one of the new masters of horror. I mean, it still kills me to this day that, like, Dr. Sleep didn't do better in the box office. Like, if you haven't seen Dr. Sleep, definitely go check that out. Uh, But, like, you know, speaking of which, like, Midnight Mass has strong, like, King vibes going for it. Like, you know, small, secluded town. Uh, It's a real, like, slow burn, which I love. And Flanagan does such a good job, like, building characters and really just hooking you in and getting you invested in the story. Uh, 
there's like some really terrifying visuals that weren't like kind to me when I was like finally trying to go to sleep. But, but like mostly <laughs> why it's working so far is this like thick air of dread like throughout the show that Flanagan just does such a great job of creating like in everything I've seen him do so far. Uh, it has a lot of like creepy shit going down. But, like, you're not quite sure what the hell's happening. At least I'm not quite sure what the hell's happening. Uh, so far, I mean, it all seems to be a little about, like, guilt and faith. I mean, there's a lot of, like, religious undertones, which, like, for someone who's agnostic, you know, spiritual horror always, like, scares the shit out of me for some reason, which is weird. Uh, but, I mean, like, so far, like, I'm definitely, like, recommending it. Uh, and I, I can't wait to finish it. I'll probably do it like after we're done recording the show, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll have a full review at some point, I'm sure. I mean, there's been a lot of buzz around Netflix right now, not with only just that show, but Squid Game has been like all over social media. So I figured I'd check that out. Um, I watched one episode so far and it, it's, it's bringing nightmares to those playground games you used to play as a kid. I'll tell you what, <laughs> now, not without spoiling too much. It's just like, you know, it's a bunch of people get pretty much kidnapped and then forced to play playground games um, and have some drastic consequences. It's definitely a series I would say check out. Um, I've only watched the first episode though so far. I want to get into binging. I was trying to watch it before we started recording today. <laughs> so I think I caught part of a trailer. Does that have like a strong like Kubrick thing like visually going on in it? Well, in that first episode, they definitely like when it came to the actual game. Yeah, it's it's all lit up nice and bright you're they're outside you know you won't it, it's supposed to feel like you're you know you're on the playground you know mm. it's, it's supposed to give you that vibe and that's where the horror really i think comes out of it when when it gets twisted on you okay. like that i mean maybe i saw a trailer for something else because there was nothing <laughs> there's <was> nothing <laughs> like outdoors in what i saw but there are a lot of like like really bright solid colors um, um there's like uniforms. a stair scene yeah so I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to check it out, though, because it does have a lot of buzz. And there's so many like great like films and shows, specifically a like, core based, you know, films uh, that come out of South Korea. So I, I want to check it out. All right. But anyway, let's go ahead and get into the show. Uh, this week, we have our first horror month countdown. Uh, and we're also breaking down episode eight of What If. Plus, we're going to be discussing an extreme weekend we had with WWE and AEW. All right. But before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nurcho swag. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Up first, Disney files multiple lawsuits to maintain control of key Marvel characters. Well, uh, this is unfortunate news. Uh, we found out late last week, according to The Hollywood Reporter, um, Marvel's lawsuits are against the heirs of legendary comic book creators such as Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Uh, with the suits seeking declaratory relief stating iconic characters including Spider-Man, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, Black Widow, and more are ineligible for copyright termination pertaining to works for hire. So it looks like the states of Steve Ditko and Stan Lee filed a notice of termination with the United States Copyright Office in regards to Marvel's copyrights 
on their creations. The heirs of the estates are attempting to use a right introduced in the 1975 Copyright Act that allows creators to terminate copyrights of works previously assigned to other people or entities. Uh, something similar just happened uh, with Friday the 13th, in which Friday the 13th screenwriter Victor Miller ended up winning this past week, actually. And there was also an, an unsuccessful lawsuit that was brought up against DC a while back over Superman. Uh, an important detail on the 1976 Copyright Act pertains to the works of higher status of comic book creators at publishers such as Marvel and DC. Under typical work for hire contracts, the entity is considered the originator of the copyright. So this really eliminates a comic book creator's ability to request termination. I mean, what it boils down to is the heirs really have a slim chance of winning. And of course, Marvel's gonna counter sue, but let's say the heirs did win in court. That would mean that Marvel would lose the rights to these characters uh, in June of 2023. Um, with all that being said, it's still pretty fucking gross the way Marvel treats its creators, uh, and something they really should think about making amends for somehow. I mean, just figure out a way to give these people not only credit, but also just a small taste of the pie, especially when you know you're making billions of dollars now off of their creations. It only feels like the right thing to do, and you would think just as like a PR move, they'd want to figure something out. So I don't really understand what they're thinking. No, I agree. It, it doesn't make any sense. You would think you would want these writers to prosper and create more content for you in the future, right? Eventually exactly. you're gonna run out of Marvel stories at some point. There's a billion of them, but you will run out <laughs> of the good ones at Maybe. some point. <laughs> There's a lot of Marvel stories. There's been a lot of comic books over the last like 80 years, so. Um, True. But I mean, <laughs> you're right, though, I, because eventually what's going to happen is you're going to have another situation like the 90s where you get a lot of creators joining up together and just refusing to work for the big two um, because yes. they want to stay away from a situation like this. They want creator owned properties. That's why Image came to be originally. So, um, you know, and a lot of like talented artists are going to be going elsewhere instead of working for Marvel and DC. So like I was saying, I just hope that they find a way to do right by everyone. But in lighter courtroom drama news, it seems that Scarlett Johansson and Disney have settled their Black Widow lawsuit. Yeah, um, and they're on good terms now. I guess they're going to be working together again. Uh, I'm hoping that Scarlett got all of her money and then some. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully this will lead to some positive change in how like Disney does business in the future with their actors. Exactly. I mean, I think we're already seeing like a lot of actors across the board outside of even Disney, you know, standing up to the, you know, concepts of what's going on with streaming. Yeah. So it, it, it it's a changing landscape as we've been saying. We've been following the story for a little while now. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, up next it looks like Sony still has plans for a Sinister 6 film. So spoilers, but with Spider-Man and Venom's crossover in the MCU all but confirmed at this point, it seems like Sony's still planning on doing a Sinister 6 film spin-off. 
Speaking on the Hero Nation podcast, Deadline's Anthony Del Alessandro noted that the plan at Sony Pictures is not only to bring Venom and Spider-Man together, but that plans for a Sinister Six movie are still very much in the cards. So in the interview, he said, with this Venom film, they're actually going to connect the Spider-Man universe they're setting up with Disney and the MCU. I know one of their long-term goals is to make a Sinister Six, and that's the kind of project we're all waiting for. We're all waiting for their version of the bad guys from the Spider-Man universe. Um, sure, I guess. I mean, Sony has teased this for years at this point. I mean, it all started back with the Amazing Spider-Man era. And I mean, we know that it seems like we're getting like a multiverse version of the Sinister Six in the upcoming Spider-Man No Way Home film. Uh, so, I mean, it should be interesting to see what version of the villains Sony plans on focusing on. If there is indeed a film planned, I mean, take this all with a giant grain of salt. I mean, we know that we have a Morbius film on the way along with the Craven the Hunter movie. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if those characters are featured, but I mean, at the moment, who really knows? I mean, just like I say with any DC film project, it's just as long as they do it the right way and it all comes out good. That's all I care. <laughs> if, it, if it's a good film, I won't have anything to say. You know, I'll enjoy it. I, I, think, it I think that's more than fair, Christian. Exactly. We want these films to be good. Um, I think what I get stuck on is like, how do you do a true Sinister Six film? Like through their perspective and not have it just be really a glorified Spider-Man movie. I mean, what's bringing this team together? Like, it's got to mm. be Spider-Man. I mean, maybe they can go about it where they're trying to maybe recruit like Venom and then eventually it becomes the Sinister Six versus like, you know, Venom and Spider-Man teaming up. I could see that. But then is that really a Sinister Six film? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be their own interpretation. I mean, hell, it could be Agent Aunt May, you know, bringing them together for some reason. Oh, you never know. Stop. <laughs> stop yourself. I forgot about that. Them wanting to do an Aunt May uh spinoff uh -huh. jesus they were so <laughs> desperate at that time to like just milk the spider-man cash cow. Uh, -huh. uh but yeah no i could I, you know what i would be down for like a venom spider-man team up against the you know sinister six that, that sounds cool but once again is that really a sinister six film no but it's something that'll put butts in seats right like people will want to go see it i guess i don't know <laughs> I mean, I would too, but maybe not with this version. Well, the book of Boba Fett gets a premiere date. That's right. Along with releasing a brand new poster, Disney Plus announced today that the book of Boba Fett will be debuting on the platform December 29th. Also, at this point, I don't think it's a stretch to be expecting a trailer soon, probably during Disney Plus Day, which I believe is November 12th. But honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up earlier, too. Well, up next, Netflix dropped a massive load of teaser trailers onto us this week. Not only dropped a brand new teaser for Stranger Things Season 4, but also gave us a first look at Cowboy Bebop and Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Would you maybe clarify what sort of clues we're supposed to be looking for here? The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Sherlock Holmes. 
So in the brief teaser we got for Stranger Things season four, uh, they take us back in the past and introduce us to the Creel house. As we see a family move in and quickly discover that something just ain't right and they're definitely not alone. Uh, we then flash forward and we're reintroduced to the gang who are much older now. <laughs> Uh, and it seems like they're entering the house now abandoned and maybe investigating something. I don't know. Um, it's really brief and it's not much of a teaser, but it was definitely nice to see most of the gang back together here. I mean, after everything they've been through, I, the last thing I'm doing is going into a haunted house, especially if I know that there's an alternate dimension, you know, out there and all this fucking monsters and shit. I, I would, I'm just going to stay in, play some D&D <laughs> with my friends and, you know, move on with my life. I, I'm not going to fucking go into a haunted house. That's not how this group throws down, man. No, apparently not. I mean, <laughs> like these 13 year olds are much braver than I am now as like a 40 year old. So, uh, but on that note, I guess one of Netflix's executives was teasing the possibility of a Stranger Things spinoff series, at least uh, maybe even a couple. Uh, one of the rumored ones would be starring Millie Bobby Brown. I mean, that makes sense. There's a lot on the table when it comes to those like experiments, all the different kids that they could possibly get into with that type of stuff going on with them, especially with Eleven. You know, there's, there's so much of a rich history there that we haven't gotten into yet. But like. A spinoff series starring like the main character, don't you feel like it's just kind of like a continuation of the series? Well, yeah. <laughs> like when I think spinoff like series, I'm thinking like one of the side characters get their own show. You know, like when like Schneider got his own show from like one day at a time. But that's way before your time. Um, but I digress. Uh, but maybe I'm nitpicking. I guess it kind of works if it's just like a solo series and like the rest of the gang aren't like part of it. Yeah, it's a side quest. Sure. <laughs> but I am interested to see if this house will be like the main focus of this or, or how much this is going to be involved. Um, you know, because I mean, this could just be one portion of the season that we're seeing uh, that they explore the house and then it gets into other stuff and stuff like that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, hmm. No, I'm sure that's the case because we know that Hopper is like somewhere in like Russia, right? Yeah. <laughs> so my guess is the scope of this season is going to be bigger than anything that they've ever like, you know, given us before. Tonight, we will achieve what no one has even attempted. We will summon and imprison death. We then got a first look at a scene from the upcoming Sandman series. Uh, it starts off with a cult of some sort, uh, performing a ritual, trying to summon and imprison death, I guess. Uh, but it looks like they get Dream, played by Tom Stewridge, instead. I thought this looked fucking cool as hell. I've been meaning to read the books for years, but just haven't gotten a chance. And now that the series is coming out, I'll probably wait till afterwards just not to spoil anything. But I'm just so excited that this is actually a thing. I mean, this has been in developmental hell for years, if not decades. So I'm really happy that like Neil Gaiman's like masterpiece is finally going to get a chance on the screen. I mean, yeah, that scene is, I mean, is literally straight out of the comics. I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything for you guys, but Dream is, is a great character, and I really did enjoy the books from, from how far I got into actually reading, and I think it will work as an actual Netflix series, so I'm excited for this. And then Christian, last but not least, 
Netflix actually dropped the intro to Cowboy Bebop? That's right, Damien. We got the blazing horns of Yoko Kano's original classic um, playing out with this great version. This kind of remake of the original opening of the show. Uh, I thought it was awesome looking. You know, they changed a couple things here to kind of highlight what they're going to show in the actual show rather than it being kind of a montage of random things happening that is in the anime version. Um, I, I'm interested in this series. I've, I've been saying that for a while. I, I think I'm one of the few people that I know that still thinks that a live action version of this show will work. It's just, you know, it, it's 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 sacred ground for a lot of people. It's nerve wracking for a lot of people. As someone who hasn't seen the source material, I thought this looked pretty damn cool. But once again, I completely understand like holding something sacred and not wanting, you know, Netflix to fuck with it. So yes, <laughs> it's just one of those things where like the original, the the actual anime was just such a masterclass in storytelling where people to this day have like been able to find something that they can connect with with this show at different stages of their life. You know, one thing meant something to them at a younger age while now even having more of a deep significance to them, especially as something that they've grown up with and probably have watched over and over again. And now that, you know, Netflix, who has tried multiple live action series and different things with anime, they don't have the greatest track record. So I understand people's concerns on that degree as well. And on top of that, it's a series that has resonated and really become an influential piece in all of anime to this day. This show is a big deal. So, I mean, only time will tell what we get out of this series. Well, it premieres November 19th, and I'll definitely check it out. Well, listeners, it's that time of year where the fangs start popping out. Howling can be heard all around, and things just seem a bit more creepy. But more importantly, it's that time of year to start our Horror Month countdowns. All right, so this year for our fourth annual Horror Month, our traditional countdown turns to witches, vampires, and werewolves. Oh my. We're also going to have a couple countdowns thrown in different segments of the show throughout the month for good measure. Quick note, our countdowns are focusing on modern films, just to kind of streamline things a bit. And because, I mean, Universal and Hammer would undoubtedly take up most of our list if we did it. Also, these are our favorite films, so if your favorites didn't make the countdown, don't get red-assed about it. Instead, let us know your favorites in the comments. We're on all your favorite social media platforms, at Amazing Nerd Show. This month begins with vampires. Damon, tell them why. Since Bram Stoker put pen to paper, there has been a character in horror that has been more celebrated and has inspired more works of literature and film than that of the vampire. From vicious and nasty to cool and seductive, there's sex and violence all wrapped up in one undead corpse. There are unbridled lust for life and the ultimate allegory for mortality and addiction. But at the end of the day, the real reason vampires resonate is because they're us, our dark reflections, untethered from pesty morals. And that's why throughout the decades, there have been countless films that explore the children of the night. So without further ado, let's count down our favorite modern day vampire films. So just like last year, to Christian's dismay, there are just too many great modern day vampire films to be contained to our usual top five format. But in the name of compromise, we're going to go ahead and go warp speed through 10 through 6. So let's hit the gas, Christian. Number 10, 1998's Blade. Imagine a time there was a serious question whether or not Marvel Comics could translate into a great film. 
But then Blade came along, the first truly successful Marvel movie at the box office. And it just doesn't get enough credit. I mean, filled with fun action and a whole lot of style, Wesley Snipes is truly iconic as the Daywalker. Plus, two words, Blood Rave. Number nine, from dusk till dawn. What starts off as a classic crime story takes one of the hardest left turns in cinema history and becomes a gonzo vampire bloodbath that only the likes of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez could dream up. Number eight, Fright Night. Fright Night shows us what happens when a horror fan has a vampire move in right next door to his suburban home. What ensues is nothing but glorious 80s fun, and damn it, it still holds up today. And you know what? The remake's not half bad either. Number seven, first. This South Korean film directed by the amazing Park Chan-wook is an intelligent dark comedy that gives us a fresh take on the vampire subgenre. In the film, we witness what happens when a Catholic priest becomes a vampire and is now torn between bloodlust and his own faith. Number six, near dark. This gritty vampire western about a nomadic group of bloodsuckers is an underappreciated cult classic and has one of the late great Bill Paxton's best performances. And now for our top five vampire flicks. Number five, what we do in the shadows. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. Viago was an 18th century dandy. A ghost cop. Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. Deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent, but I don't. Now, I know you weren't expecting a comedy film in the middle of our horror month countdown, but as Damon so eloquently stated up top, vampires are our dark reflections, and Taika Waititi's What We Do in the Shadows takes that statement even more literal as this mockumentary pokes fun at the flaws of being a vampire. Taika's take on vampires hilariously shows misfortunes of four time-displaced evil beings struggling to fit in with the changing times, while also trying to, you know, keep that allure of being a vampire. Uh, this twist on the usual sexy, powerful vampire grinds in the harsh realities of what it really means to be an undead being in the 20th century. The approach of humor in this just kind of ranges from like these very subtle jokes to completely outrageous moments with excellent comedic timing from not only Taika himself, since he actually stars in it, but his co-stars as well. Jesse Clements in this is fucking hilarious as Vlad and honestly has me laughing every single time. So as someone who does recommend this movie to every single person I meet, like I somehow find some weird way of bringing this up in conversation <laughs> i'm of course recommending this to all of our listeners as well number four bram stoker's dracula vampires do exist this one we fight this one we face can take on many forms he is both young and old he can appear as mist as vapor as the fog and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. So Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula is a lavish affair, taking a more operatic and romantic approach to the original story. Just drippy with amazing art direction and an unforgettable score, Coppola really doubles down on production to give us the Dracula film we deserve. But with that being said, what really makes this film work 
is it's anchored by two brilliant performances by Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. Also, Coppola tries to actually deepen the lore of the title character in a way not many have attempted before or since. But unfortunately, with that being said, he also casted Keanu Reeves to play Jonathan Harker. Reeves stands out like a sore thumb here, and an offense that I found almost unforgivable for years, and probably the only reason why this movie isn't ranked higher on our list. But damn it, regardless, it's still a fantastic movie. It's something I revisit at least a couple times a year, and it definitely belongs on our countdown. Number three, The Lost Boys. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. <laughs> Vampires, 80s rock and roll, and heavy synthesizer should honestly be all you need to know for why Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys should be in your vampire binge this horror month season. This pure 80s classic brings horror to the beachside front of a California town, and while it may be more remembered as a nostalgic piece of the late 80s that brought you badass teenage vamps, I've always kind of found what they did with this kind of bright beachy setting to be a slightly unnerving place for a martyr capital of the world and of course home to a gang of vampires. Schumacher brought the rock and roll edge to his take on vampires and brought us great performances from the ever cool Kiefer Sutherland and the dynamic duo of Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. Honestly, if you haven't seen The Lost Boys yet, you're simply doing yourself a disservice. Pop in the VHS tape, pop yourself some popcorn, and enjoy right after you're done listening to this episode, of course. Number 2. 2008's Let the Right One In. A story about loneliness and acceptance, Let the Right One In is a dark tale about learning to survive in a cruel world. This breathtaking Swedish film shows how much the genre really has to offer. The unconventional friendship between our two main characters poetically displays the importance of unconditional love because their very survival depends on it. So while not completely awful, do yourself a favor and stay away from the American remake and watch the original, subtitles and all. This sad, twisted, eerie story filled with blood-soaked snowscapes will enchant any horror fan worth their salt. Number one, Salem's Law. They're breeding on one another. The vampires are creating vampires. The master wants you. It's a geometric progression. Two times two times four times eight. There's a dead man upstairs. Bill! Yeah, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Look at me. Ned Tebbett's body has disappeared from the morgue. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Bill! So I'm absolutely cheating here because Salem's Lot is technically a TV miniseries. I mean, it was edited in Europe for a cinematic release and on TV throughout the 80s, it was also presented that way. But I digress. I mean, it's our countdown and our rules. Salem's Lot absolutely traumatized me as a young child, but that's what happens when you get the legendary Toby Hooper adapting a Stephen King novel. I mean, from the vampire child knocking outside his friend's window to the Nosferatu-like Barlow, the film is just pure nightmare fuel. By far the scariest film on our countdown. It has all the classic Stephen King tropes that we've come accustomed to throughout the years. The main character is a writer who returns home to face a traumatic event that happened in his past, only to find the town is being infected by vampires. 
both parts of vampire film and a classic haunted house movie, Salem's Lot has all the chills you want and then some, and it's still creepy as all hell. And that's why it's number one on our countdown. And now a message from our sponsor, Manscaped. Attention listeners across the galaxy, all the way from Australia to Houston, do we have a pew problem? If so, our friends at Manscaped have cleared you for takeoff with their fourth generation and brand new lawnmower 4.0. Blast your pube to the next planet with the Performance Package 4.0. The orbits in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity when you use the best tools for the job from the leaders in male grooming. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code AMAZING. Christian, I'm a hairy bastard, and one day my wife said enough's enough and got me my very own Manscaped lawnmower. I went from being a Wookiee to being as smooth as Lando. So you know my Bad Batch was more than ready for the next mission when I got my lawnmower 4.0. Ready for an out-of-world experience, fellas? Look no further than the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped. That has just taken off in not only the US, but Canada, the UK, across Europe, Australia, South Africa, and Singapore. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver ball deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your whole solar system. First scheduled for liftoff, new Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer. This spaceship is here to guide you on a journey to trim your body, balls, butt, and even your anus. This fourth generation trimmer also features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch, can engage a travel lock, and is even waterproof. The Lawnmower 4.0 also has a 4000K LED spotlight you can turn on and off when needed for a more precise shave throughout your travels across the universe. The Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker. It's like having a little astronaut to chop your worst weeds in your nose and ears. The Weed Whacker is also waterproof and uses a 9000 RPM. RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. This nose and ear hair trimmer provides skin safe technology which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Don't forget to use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver to help your little planets be on their A game while feeling the sun's heat. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Abort Harry Balls and Buzz Lightyear that Woody with Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use our code 20AMAZING. That's 20AMAZING to unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. All right, I can't believe it, but we only got two episodes left. Feels like this series just flew by. Uh, but let's go ahead and break down What If, Episode 8, What If Ultron 1. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Marvel's What If. You have been warned. You don't, you don't have to do this. I made you for peace. It's evolution. Only a primitive mind would fail to see the distinction 
Which is why you have to die. Well, listeners, did you have fun last week with that cheery episode of What If? Because this week we're right back into the muck with another world and possibly the entirety of reality on the verge of destruction thanks to Ultron. Well, I mean, despite this episode being a lot darker, I felt like the show really got back on track this week. I will say that. Well, they kind of had to because it's, you know, the the grand finale. <laughs> yeah, with only two episodes left. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, man, listen, Kevin Vaki doesn't have to do anything. If he decides to make a shitty series just because he could do that, honestly, right? <laughs> like, we wouldn't be able to do anything about it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're still going to watch the shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> but luckily, that wasn't the case here. From the start of this episode, we're introduced to a bleak existence as Hawkeye and Black Widow seem to be the only souls left standing against Ultron. And yet another great action sequence, we see Natasha narrowly escaping Ultron's army as Clint rains arrows down on her chasers. Geared out like Mad Max characters and Hawkeye now having a mechanical arm, we find out that they are in Russia looking for a weapon to stop Ultron. When Hawkeye first appeared on screen, like for a split second, I thought it was Cable. And it's because he had, like, the whole cloak on and, the you know, you got the cyborg arm and everything. So, like, I was like, holy shit. But, no, it's just Hawkeye. Uh, but I, I will say this. This is the best Hawkeye we've ever gotten in the MCU. Like, I'm hoping we get this version of Hawkeye in his new series. Maybe that's the reason they did this, you know, to show off more of his skills and abilities. So, like, when we get to that show, we, we have more of an understanding. Because they didn't, you know, you're right. They didn't show it in the movies enough. Yeah, I mean, nearly just enough. all the trick arrows alone. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, where's this bit? I mean, sure, he's a little suicidal and everything, but he does kick a lot of ass in this episode. As always, it's time for the Watcher to bring us up to speed. We take a look back at the events of Age of Ultron in the MCU, in which Tony creates Ultron to protect the world and... Ultron coming to the natural conclusion that all life must be destroyed, naturally. The big twist this time around being that instead of Jarvis becoming the vision and saving the world, Ultron succeeds in taking the synthesoid's form, and with the Mind Stone at his disposal, becomes absolutely unstoppable as not only does he kill nearly every Avenger in one blast, but also launches the world's nukes. I do wish, like, instead of just kind of giving us a taste of everything that kind of happens leading up to this, that we got a little more of, like, you know, the battle between, like, Ultron and the Avengers and, like, actually see him take, you know, over Vision's body and everything. Um, But once again, I think that's all just due to time, uh, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been saying a lot, you know, during the episode breakdowns for the show. (laughs) Um, But it did come out this past week that they originally wanted more time for each one of these episodes, but then COVID happened. So they're kind of limited, uh, like how much mm-hmm. they can do. So, I mean, with that in mind, they still delivered a stellar product with like the animation and the action sequences throughout these. Awesome. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just kind of hoping though, with the second season, cause we know that's definitely a thing that we do mm-hmm. get those expanded episodes now. Ultron doesn't just stop with Earth, though. As Thanos comes to collect the Mind Stone, Ultron is quick to literally render Thanos in two and collect the remaining Infinity Stones. Now realizing, you know, the scope of life throughout the galaxy, Ultron sets to wipe the known universe clean of its infection. So yeah, when Thanos showed up, I was totally hoping it was like the zombie version of Thanos from a couple episodes back. Uh (laughs) That would have been awesome. But yeah, I mean, this was one of those moments that could have used more time I mean, I did chuckle 
when Ultron just cut him completely in half. Um, but at the same time, like that would have been one hell of a throwdown to see, especially, I mean, he had all the stones, right? Yes, he could have like slowed down time. I'm sure one of the stones could have alerted him to just the blast, like, or how much of a threat he is. There's so yeah. many aspects I mean, of that. There's no way Ultron should have been able to get like the drop on him that quickly. So, uh, but I'm sure it's just a situation of like getting Ultron from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Like, you know, getting, you know, Ultron the stones from Thanos without wasting too much time since they've just got like so much happening in this episode. Um, I don't know. I just wish it was handled a little better. Or once again, they just had more time. And while seeming unstoppable as we see planets far and wide succumb to Ultron's might, we would finally see Carol Danvers intervene. But alas, while being the first to get close to defeating Ultron, she still ends up losing as he uses enough of a blast to rival that of the Starkiller base and destroy several planets along with Captain Marvel. And while I did enjoy that fight, and I thought it was pretty cool how much Captain Marvel was able to get in some damage on him, just like just like we said we all, he just took care of thanos in like two seconds just using one stone so it's like now that when they show it th that fight not happening and then this one being such a you know back and forth battle it just it was very it, it threw me off for a little bit it's a little inconsistent i i, I agree yeah. and does he not realize that he could just literally snap away the entire universe without breaking a sweat right <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking about those like why doesn't he just snap away the universe but i don't know maybe he considers that the power could destroy him oh because we do know the stones can break you down that but... is true that is true oh and i also thought it took danvers like way too long to get involved for someone who's out there just like saving planets I, like he's out here killing so many lives and it took her that long to finally Dude, attack her beeper didn't go off man what do you want you what do you want from I her guess. <laughs> with all life nearly destroyed ultron stands above his destruction now without a true purpose as the watcher actually narrates to us just how lost ultron feels but in this moment ultron begins to hear the watcher similarly to dr strains when he became more powerful in episode four which also makes me wonder if thanos would have been able to actually hear the watcher at some point though he wasn't actually infused with the Infinity Stone, same as Ultron is here. But as Ultron begins to notice the Watcher, it becomes apparent that he can see directly into the Watcher's realm, which actually takes our narrator by complete surprise. The Watcher lamenting in the idea of Ultron having access to the multiverse shivers at the very thought of all the destruction that could be caused. You would think that this motherfucker would have learned from the Doctor Strange episode, right? Uh-huh. Because <laughs> this is kind of on him now, right? Yeah, because he's clearly like, it, Doctor Strange just sees him. Like, he's just there. It's like, so I don't it's like, know. dude, move away from your cosmic people. <laughs> like... <laughs> And like, who's he talking to? Like, does he know that he's talking to the audience? Like, what? Who is he narrating for? So the Watcher is like part of this like all powerful, like, you know, cosmic race whose sole purpose is to record like, you know, major events throughout like, you know, the universe's history. So pretty much what he's narrating is just, you know, him recording, you know, what he's actually witnessing. Um, now, at one point, the Watcher was actually dead 
in the 616 and I think Fury killed him and then like his like brothers and sisters found out and they somehow like fused Fury with the Watcher and like he was condemned to just kind of watch um, you know which was like torturous for him but now I believe the Watcher's back somehow so (laughs) I don't know if that makes any sense Basically, Marvel wanted to get rid of, like, the old man version of Nick Fury and replace him with his son. So, that's what happened. And his son happens to look like Samuel L. Jackson. Awesome. The Watcher would also go on to state that there might still be hope as we return to Natasha and Clint as they search through old KGB archives looking to find an answer to defeating Ultron. This is no easy feat, though, as the archives are immense and the answer is like finding a needle in a haystack. In this scene, we see the Watcher desperately contemplating, helping the two of them find the answers they seek as Ultron's voice grows within his dimension. Just as Hawkeye nears finding the answer, he gives up on actually searching, exhausted by the loss of life, you know, his family and friends and anyone else who might not have survived Ultron's attack. He is just tired of fighting. But Natasha doesn't give up and actually finds the file on Arnim Zola, discovering a location in Siberia that may have a copy of his digital conscience. I did have to laugh at this scene because like in like the Marvel comics, the Watcher is constantly interfering. (laughs) So Mm. it seems like, you know, The MCU's version of The Watcher has a lot more restraint. Like any horror show, The Watcher celebrates a bit too soon, which leads to Ultron actually busting into The Watcher's domain. But meanwhile, in Siberia, Hawkeye and Widow discover Zola's consciousness and are faced with having to convince him to help their cause. But, you know, the sniveling AI is quick to help after a bit of threatening. Downloading Zola onto an arrow flash drive, Black Widow draws the attention of the Ultron army, allowing Hawkeye to launch Zola into one of the bots in hopes that Arnim Zola can dismantle Ultron's hive mind. But after being active within an Ultron bot, Zola finds that he can't connect to the hive, most likely because as we know, its host is outside our very plane of existence. Without being able to defeat Ultron in that moment, Clint and Natasha, along with Mecha Zola, must make a daring escape, but in a moment where Natasha has to catch and save Clint, similar to their moment in Endgame, Clint makes the ultimate sacrifice so that Natasha can get away with Zola. However, upon escape, Widow again questions Zola on why he can't connect to Ultron, with Zola coming to the conclusion that he must actually be outside the bounds of their reality. Hell of a moment for Hawkeye going out in a blaze of glory, you know, them giving him like one last hero moment. I mean, it's crazy to think that Black Widow is now the last Avenger standing, but it's a real like, you know, testament to her character. And I'm glad that, you know, Marvel's giving her just due. I definitely think it makes sense for the Hawkeye character at this point, because I mean, you know, he he did so much as Ronin just because he lost his family and stuff like that. So imagine like, you know, Ultron's blown up the planet. He's probably given up hope, you know, on why he should even be fighting at this point. So it made yeah, sense. But I mean, he still went out like a hero, too. So, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is when we return to find Ultron and the Watcher in a badass power battle as the Watcher shows he can actually hold his own against someone with the Affinity Stones. The two of them smack each other across the multiversal planes, cracking through the glass of reality. America Chavez style. We get to a point where Ultron seems to be overpowering the Watcher, every blow altering the timeline of the universe they stand in. I did like how in the background on the big screen you see Steve Rogers being sworn in as president. 
Um, you know, it's something that happens uh, in the Ultimate Universe and also in an issue of What If, so that was pretty cool. But in a last-ditch effort to save himself, the Watcher escapes Ultron before actually just getting his whole body obliterated. But where does he run to now that Ultron can see all from the Watcher's plane of existence? That's where we find the Watcher inside a bubble that the evil Doctor Strange made himself asking for Strange's help. And, of course, Strange arrogantly forcing the Watcher to verbally admit he must break his oath in the closing moments of this episode. Hell yes. <laughs> I was so excited to see evil Doctor Strange back. Um, you knew he was going to make a comeback, though, eventually. You know, uh -huh. if not this season, next season. But it, it seems like he's going to be at least part of this, like, multiverse of, you know, Avengers team that the Watcher puts together. So. And it only makes sense, because if you think about it, that at the end of that episode, Strange did realize the error of his ways. I mean, he was way too late, but, you know, and he was, like, pleading uh, with the Watcher, you know, to make things right. So, I mean, even though he's still a prick, I mean, of course he's going to be completely on board with this plan. <laughs> so do you think this whole storyline concludes with, like, you know, the season finale, you know, next episode? Or do you think that's just kind of the start and that's going to lead us into like a bigger storyline into the second season. I think they will defeat Ultron or at least this version of Ultron and maybe he'll upload his consciousness somewhere else or something else and they'll have like a legion of of doom in the next season, but I I definitely think this was this is the start of this team. Like this will be like something that they explore more in the second season with the team probably defeating bigger enemies as we go on. Uh, but just because, you know, Black Widow has that you know easy cure right now to stop ultron with zola in you know one of the ultron bots i feel like that's what you know they just have to get her there mm -hmm. to finally dismantle oh, that's him. true i didn't think about that so i think you're right i think this ultron crisis will like you know come to a conclusion you know next episode but maybe you know there's repercussions for putting this team together that the watcher's gonna have to deal with you know next season and maybe we'll see a return of this team or a different version for that matter. Like maybe it's the same formula where we get like, you know, different peaks of different, you know, realities. And then we see a reason for those characters to eventually come together again, you know, with like maybe some like new ones. No, exactly. And I think what I am excited for with this, you know, final episode will be kind of seeing how these heroes interact with one another. Because I think there's so much that each one of them has in contrast to one another. Imagine T'Challa meeting this version of Black Panther coming oh, Killmonger? in. Oh, Killmonger? I mean, they're going to... Yeah. yeah, Killmonger, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up, right? And they're all going to probably teach Thor a lesson <laughs> in humility or something. <laughs> I don't know. They only got like 30 minutes, so... <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, I mean, yeah i mean there's a lot of cool dynamics to kind of explore you know with these like characters that they've introduced throughout the season i do think it's funny mm. that they're basically kind of doing the exiles here um i don't which i don't think that book is still around it, it was really popular for like a short period of time in the early 2000s um i loved it um it mostly revolved around like mutant characters uh they somehow get displaced in their timeline and then they're like forced to kind of like form this team and then go like throughout it is very quantum leap like they have to go and mm -hmm. fix other timelines that are in trouble the watcher's not involved at all though i i believe 
So it, it was much more like X-Men based. I mean, there were some like Avenger characters thrown in and everything. I mean, it really did serve as like, you know, an early 2000s version of What If, where we got a peek at like these fun, different, like alternate realities in the Marvel Universe. Um, it always had this like high crazy body count and everything like no characters were safe except for Blink who like the whole series was kind of like built around she, be she became like super popular during Age of Apocalypse um, so it feels like they just wanted to find another vehicle to like you know keep on telling Blink stories um, but yeah no, and I don't know if she's still around currently I know that like the 616 version of the character like came back to life but she's like much different it's a really fun concept though and i wouldn't mind like you know seeing a series like this kind of explore that um but i mean who knows maybe they go a completely different route well i could also see them doing it as almost a spin-off if they wanted to do it they could i mean if they wanted to play around that with that concept and keep this team together and focus on it they could do a separate series you know the more i think about it though i think the problem is is the sandbox of the MCU is kind of too narrow to do what the Exiles book did. Because the Exiles book had so many different characters to play with, and it feels like mm -hmm. just going off of what we've seen, you know, with the What If series here, um, they don't want to introduce new characters that we haven't seen before, you know, on the screen mm -hmm. in the MCU. Um, which I get, like, you don't want to premiere a huge character, you know, in your animated series. Um, you probably want to wait to either put them on a Disney Plus show or on the big screen. But that will kind of handcuff a series with, like, an Exiles concept to it. But, I mean, regardless, I'm looking forward to the finale and, you know, what the future brings for this series. Do you think we'll eventually get a appearance by Kang? Um, I definitely think after we've explored him in the live action films, yeah, they'll definitely bring Kang into this series. I think he's perfect for it. So you, you know? think they'll wait, though, flesh out that character elsewhere before we, you know, get any kind of version of him here? Yeah, I, I, yeah probably like a season three type of character <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and it definitely seems like, you know, what's happening in this series you know it, at least it's rumored to have consequences for you know the actual films i mean we know that there's the big rumor that you know peggy carter you know um you know captain carter is supposed to be popping up in you know the next doctor strange film plus we've also heard that the zombies could be in that film yeah. as well so yeah. here's to hoping this week's episode is brought to you by smile brilliant Damon, if you're like me, you're constantly on the lookout for the best teeth whitening option on the market. Well, this week's sponsor, Smile Brilliant, has provided us with five important facts to keep in mind. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most, it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact number two, teeth whitening does not damage your teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which we all know lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances 
the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remillerization or desensitizing gel. Fact number four, Caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch onto. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. You know, whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars and they slide on your teeth. Saliva will flood the generic trays because they are bulky and don't create an actual seal. Oh, and you like likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefits. You need a high output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the you know gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom fitted tray. You can have a dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head over to smilebrilliant.com and use their lab direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you would pay at a dentist. Oh, and if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase a Smile Brilliant custom fitted night guard. Once again, for a fraction of the price you would spend at a dentist. That's right. Make sure you head over to Smile Brilliant and use our promo code NERD. That spells nerd for an exclusive Amazing Nerd Show discount. Once again, that's smilebrilliant.com and use our coupon code NERD for an exclusive Amazing Nerd Show discount. And remember, guys, don't be an idiot. Smile Brilliant. Before we move into our final segment of this episode, I do want to say that we're going to be skipping Christian's Corner this week for time. I am going to be going over all the big news that comes out of Tokyo Game Show um, from this weekend on our next episode, as well as we have a Horror Month countdown, all focused around the big horror game villains coming next week. So definitely tune in next week if you're interested in more Christian's Corner, or make sure to join us on Twitch as we have started doing Horror Month games as well. I, I just started Alien Isolation on the Twitch channel, plus we're going to be playing Left 4 Dead and tons of other horror games throughout the month, so definitely check us out on Twitch when you get a chance. But all right. Let's move on to wrestling. Four men to be exact. Four pillars. You got Jungle Boy. Beat him. You got Sammy Guevara. Beat him. You got Darby Allen, whatever. And then you have the strongest pillar. The most important pillar, the pillar who had the first match at All In, the pillar who was a participant in the first match in the history of this company, the pillar who is the youngest athlete ever to main event in AEW pay-per-view, the pillar who is a two-time beautiful dynamite diamond ring champion, the pillar who's better than you and you know it. And that pillar's name is Maxwell Jacob Friedman. All right, Christian, let's go ahead and let's talk some of the highlights from this past week in wrestling. So on the WWE front, 
we had extreme rules. Kind of. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, no one told all the fans buying the tickets for the pay-per-view that there was only going to be one extreme rules match, uh, which was the main event. So there were some definitely disgruntled fans in the audience, like chanting for tables throughout the pay-per-view. Um, and it was pretty noticeable. Now, I hate the Extreme Rules pay-per-view overall. Like, just having gimmick match after gimmick match after gimmick match just feels like it just mm-hmm. waters the entire concept down. So I'm fine with them only doing one gimmick match, you know, for the pay-per-view. But I'm also fine with them just getting rid of the whole, like, you know, Extreme Rules pay-per-view overall. Like, I mean, I feel like WWE doesn't need to have a theme for every fucking pay-per-view. That's not how it used to be back in the day. So, um, but if you condition your audience to expect something and, you know, they go out and spend their hard-earned money... Thinking, oh, we're going to get fucking ladders, tables, and chairs, like, throughout the entire night. Like, I don't blame them for being upset. Honestly, it was so tame that when we got to that triple threat, I thought they were going to do some regular rules where, like, you could do rope breaks and stuff (laughs) in the match. I was expecting it. (laughs) Overall, like, it was a solid pay-per-view, but it was pretty much a glorified SmackDown or Raw. Um the wrestlers all worked hard, but you just can't outwork bad booking. And a lot mm. of the matches just had, you know, pretty fucking shitty finishes. And I'll be completely honest, like Raw was a better show than Extreme Rules overall. Just the pacing and everything, it just felt more important. And it really shows me that, you know, this pay-per-view was just filler. You know, and they do have yes. the draft <laughs> coming up and everything like that. But it just feels like lately WWE's booking for TV. And a lot of people don't want to give AEW credit for that, especially since they're going up against, like, Monday Night Football. But, motherfuckers, Monday Night Football has been happening since Raw started. Because I've sat through plenty of falls with nothing happening Raws every fucking Monday as proof that they don't usually book these giant hotshot shows because they're worried about the NFL. But before we move on to Raw... Let's talk about the main event of Extreme Rules (laughs) and the atrocity that was the finish of that fucking match. Yeah, man. Like, I knew the moment, you know, Finn Balor showed up on television as the demon, you know, he was going to lose going up against Mm -hmm. Roman Reigns. It was it was inevitable. But all that really mattered was, you know, how does he lose? to Roman Reigns. And boy, did I not expect this type of ending <laughs> for the fucking demon of all characters. Someone that brought me to, you know, a whole new heights of fandom back in NXT. Just, <laughs> I don't know, man. This was, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I, just, I have no words for it. It really just shows you how misguided their booking is right now. The fact that they thought they would be like, you know, saving face for the demon by having like the top rope bust on him and then have him like crash and burn. And that causes, you know, him to lose. Like it, it was just fucking shit, Christian. Like <laughs> it was <Yes>. pure <laughs> shit. Like... <laughs> That's all I have to say for it. Like, I hated everything that led to that moment, too. It didn't help that they, like, started to pull off their, like, bad B-movie shenanigans, you know, for the demon this time. Um, You know, the fucking heartbeats and then, like, Finn just flopping there. Like, 
off rhythm uh-huh. with the music. Yes. <laughs> so awkward and just weird looking. And then like, you know, him popping up and then his music, his theme song playing the entire time with the red light. I was like, not the fucking red light again. I was half expecting <laughs> the theme to pop up, honestly. Ooh. Um, But yeah, no, I, I just was like, like, at that point, I was already soured on everything. But then to have the fucking rope just break at him and then him to fall down and look like a complete idiot. <laughs> Are you just trying to have him run straight to Tony Khan's arms like once his contract's up? Because that's what's going to happen. I mean, even out beyond just the ending of this match, I, I thought they booked this weirdly from start to finish. Like, I never like it was a weird visual seeing Roman Reigns look afraid of Finn Balor at the start of this match. Like I, I expected him to almost be like cocky, like, of course I could beat this guy. And then like, you know, realize, oh, this is a monster that I'm going up against throughout the match. Like but have him the come fact that he to seems, that like, realization, like yes. at some point mm-hmm. during the match. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The, the fact that he seemed cowardly just didn't make sense at the moment. And then like, I don't know, it was it was a twenty minute match, but I never once got even for an extreme rules match, I didn't I never get that like sense that they really did all that much damage to one another yeah. to get to that final point either. So I was just I, I was thrown off by all that and then of course I was thrown off by him tripping and you know, holding his ankle for a good five minutes before Roman Reigns speared him. It felt like something <laughs> that would be featured on like Bachamania. Yes. You know, like <laughs> Like, you get the sound, you know, cue, the wah, 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 you know, like, uh-huh. it was just like, <laughs> it, it made him look pathetic. And it's no way to protect the demon. The demon should never be seen in that light. You know, like, I would have much rather have him, like, lose cleanly than him, like, you know, fall on his ass, the clutching mm-hmm. his knee, and then have him get speared for the loss. You know, especially after the big production he made for his comeback. <laughs> yes. Because that was literally like 30 seconds later. That'd be like Hogan, like hulking up and then getting pinned by Andre. Like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, Raw was a much better show and it has been a much better show the last like month. You know, since, you know, AEW's beaten them a few times in the demo and, you know, of course, Monday Night Football. So, I mean, like I said, I, I, it's probably both of those things combined that, you mm-hmm. know, has them booking the way that they've been booking. Uh, but, you know, right now the formula is entertaining. So I've been enjoying it. I mean, there's an actual like through line throughout the episode um, story wise. They start off with a hot angle or a hot match. And then they build up to a main event, you know, that people actually want to see. Um, And a lot of that revolves around Big E. They've been doing a great job with him and, you know, building him up as a champion. Uh, You know, his promos have been great. I mean, all this is long overdue. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you could see through what they're doing. And I don't know how long they can, like, consistently pull this off Monday after Monday. I mean, after a while, like, all these title matches are going to start not to mean anything. But right now, for a fan who's been barely watching Raw over the last, like, three or four months, I mean, it's a much entertaining show. So I'm enjoying it overall. I mean, I'm happy to know that they are doing something, you know, right by Big E as champion. Because like what I said, when he became champion, I was like 
already deflated by the idea of what could come next. You know, I'm like, oh, well, Bobby Lashley could win it in two weeks. You know, I, they could have taken it off of my I agree 100%. And on the pay-per-view, when they announced this match, because they basically used the pay-per-view to announce, you know, this big match yes. for Raw. That's what it felt like. It was the lead-in to Raw. Um, I, right away, after seeing how, you know, Biggie won the match by pinning Bobby Lashley, I was like, oh, shit. He's going to lose the fucking title back to him on Monday, isn't he? But luckily, that wasn't the case. They set up the match to, like, start off Raw. Uh, we had a surprise appearance by the Hurt Business, who, without explanation, somehow was back together. But you know what? Okay. Bangers can't be choosers. <laughs> I'm going to take it. Because <laughs> I was really upset that when they disbanded the group for no fucking reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just makes perfect sense with, you know, Big E having the new day. Like, why not? Um, but yeah, the Hurt Business came out. It ended up, like, being a disqualification. Um, and right then and there, I was like, okay, now it's just going to go into a six-man tag. You know, they'll announce it for the main event. But no, mm-hmm. fucking Adam Pierce came out and made a fucking title match for the main event and have it be in a steel fucking cage. Um, something more extreme than anything we saw <laughs> in Extreme Rules. <laughs> and I got to say, like, and I think part of it was because I was worried about Big E losing the belt, but I was on the edge of my seat throughout the entire match. And it had some really good fucking highlight moments. Uh with the New Day and the Hurt Business. They had a huge highlight moment for Xavier Woods hitting a massive super kick on Cedric Alexander as he, like, jumps off the top of the cage. I mean, great fucking moment, and that's definitely going to be following Xavier for years to come. Uh, And then we also had Kofi with a big spot. So it was a really well-done match. I mean, I'll always hate WWE's, like, escape the cage rules. It's just nonsensical, and like a lot of times, I have a hard time just like suspending disbelief. Bobby Lashley at times was like choosing to climb up the cage when the door was literally like feet away. Uh, but you know, whatever, I can deal with that. We got a really cool finish for Biggie, him hitting the big ending off the top rope on Lashley because of that, though. So I mean, all was forgiven. It's just really nice to see them invest in the right person. You know, and finally give someone who's so, you know, well-deserving, you know, his just dues. But I've been burned so many times by the WWE. I mean, part of me is like, okay, we'll see how long this really lasts. Now, this might seem like a random tangent of a question, but I've seen a lot of discussion online over the years of, like, Xavier Woods. He's the only member of the New Day that hasn't won the world title at this point. Do you imagine... He could possibly be a world champion in the future in WWE's eyes. I think he definitely has the potential. I just don't know if WWE like sees him in that light. Um, he's been having great matches lately, um, you know, when he has the opportunity. And then there was another one-on-one match that I'm totally blanking on that he was like super impressive. And I was I was totally like, why isn't he getting to wrestle more one-on-one? Because a lot of times it feels like, you know, they use him more of a manager type. Uh, and mm. that's kind of the way WWE like views him. But I mean, the guy has tons of charisma and it seems like he's got the skill. I'm guessing it's probably just a height thing. You know, knowing McMahon, um, which is unfortunate. Now, I know he has been like petitioning for the WWE to hold a King of the Ring uh, tournament again. He really wants to be King of the Ring, I guess. 
podcast. <laughs> That's like a dream for him. And I hope so because I love tournaments. I like I, I think I'm the only wrestling fan who like loves a good tournament. Um, I know I, there was a rumor going around just a couple months ago that they're going to do a queen of the ring, actually. So, yeah, we'll see if that's on the horizon. But if that's the case, I can't imagine them doing a king and a queen of the ring at the same time. Like, I feel like it's going to be either or. I don't know. I could see both of them having like a payoff match at like a a, a random pay-per-view just or something. It feels like a lot knows? of like tournament matches matches happening at once. Yeah. I don't know. Uh-oh. WWE's always been hot and cold on the king of the ring. You know, they'll do it consistently for years, and then all of a sudden it's mm-hmm. like they hate it, and they never want to even talk about it anymore, and then all of a sudden they bring it back for a year or two, and then it goes away. Like, I would be fine with that, like, replacing Extreme Rules, <laughs> so that we also had the return of Sasha Banks, which I was excited to see her, but at the same time, I don't need her involved, you know, in the whole Becky-Bianca, you know, feud, because um, that feud already, like, is it working for me? So um, I'm guessing it's probably just a way to, like, introduce her, though, so she could be on the board at the draft, which is coming up, you know, next week. Uh, But, yeah, like, that whole Bianca-Becky match, I don't know, man. Like, I don't understand the point of Becky being a heel. Like, she does a fine enough job at it, but, like, you took, like, your hottest baby face— you know, who's returning to the hmm. company after being away for over nine months and you're turning her heel and no one wants to boo her. And then, like, I mean, one, <laughs> you're going against the grain. Two, you're doing nothing but hurting, like, Bianca's momentum as a babyface because she was, all, like, super over before, like, Becky showed up. And now she's getting kind of a mixed reaction. Because no one wants to mm-hmm. boo Becky. And then the WWE, like, during the match, is actually encouraging fans to cheer for Becky. And you can't <laughs> tell me otherwise because they handed out all those fucking Becky Lynch signs. <laughs> you know, you, like, half the crowd had Bianca signs, you know. And they're the little pre-made ones, you know, on the, like, 8x10, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, card stock. And then, like, half the crowd had the Becky ones. And then, like, through the entire match, it was like, let's go Becky, let's go Bianca, like, back and forth. So I just, I don't understand the point of that. And as you said, it's only going to get murkier now that Sasha Banks is involved. Uh, And And she attacked both of them. Like, if they wanted to, they could just, you know, I understand maybe they want to resolve, like, the match never happening. So maybe they will have a match on TV with Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair. And then one of them can go up against Becky. And that could be the storyline before they do the draft and separate them ultimately. I can't imagine Sasha and Becky both being heel on the same show together anyway. Yes, no, I agree. I agree. It just doesn't make much sense. At, at first, when she showed up mm. and she attacked Bianca, I thought we were going to like get like Sasha and Becky teaming up, possibly. But then, mm. you know, Becky does that awkward thumbs up. And then, of course, she gets attacked. So, uh, but I don't know. I don't get it. So it's just messy storytelling. But it really just all goes back to like the WWE like sabotaging themselves. Like they just don't know how to build baby faces anymore. And you have a baby face who just organically got over like Bianca. And now they're like, I don't know, they're ruining it. <laughs> they're literally just shooting themselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. 
it really reminds me of when they tried to turn Stone Cold heel. Like, Stone Cold was a fantastic heel. Fantastic. The problem was, though, no one wanted to boo him. So, like, it messed up so many different storylines. He was super over with the crowd, even when he was doing, like, the most dastardly, cowardly things. Like, he was still the most entertaining thing on the show. And it ended up hurting, mm-hmm. like, all the other baby faces who were facing off against him. So you're kind of making the same mistake all over again. Because, I mean, you don't have that many baby faces in this company that are actually over. Especially in the women's division. Because, like, the only baby face I can ever think about in WWE is Kevin Owens. And he might not even be there much longer. So. <laughs> no, and then the, the thing, too, like, Bianca actually felt like she was over. You know, and they were actually doing yes. a good job pushing her. And now I feel like she's getting a mixed reaction because of this. So hopefully they come to their senses. And I don't know, maybe they get like separated by the draft and, you know, Bianca can you know get her momentum back. Or, you know, maybe they just have Becky, you know, turn face again and they just act like this never happened in the first place. Because they also never really gave a, a real explanation on why she turned heel. It's just Mm. because it seems like. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I don't see any of the things that they've done with her betraying how she like, you know, portrayed the character before. You know, she was saying that she was the best back then. She is a lot more cowardly. So there 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 is that aspect on the show. And I know you don't watch the shows on the Uh. show. She's (laughs) doing, you know, like typical, like cowardly heel stuff. Um, She's not doing a bad job being a heel. It's just no one wants to see it. All right, so let's go ahead and flip channels and let's talk some AEW. Uh, last time we talked, we hadn't seen uh, Rampage, which was taking place in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And it was actually a two-hour special. Um, Christian, what were your thoughts overall, man, about the show? I mean, we got to see CM Punk on TV for the first time in seven years, which was a great match against Hobbs. I thought um, we got a lot of awesome experiences with the uh, Super Click reuniting. We had the Lucha Brothers with Santana and Ortiz going up against HFO, which was a great match. Um, I I just thought it was an overall great week in wrestling, yeah. honestly, when it came to all of Grand Slam. I thought it was a great experience for New York to have. I even liked what happened in the you know main event of that night with uh, John Moxley and Eddie King and going up against Suzuki Gun, even though it felt like a very fast-paced version of a New Japan match for me. Uh, like, it was just like, let's get the highlights out real fast. I just wish it wasn't a lights-out match. Like, I, w- I would much rather prefer, like, a straight-up wrestling match because it just became a-, a glorified, you know, hardcore match with a bunch of bells and whistles that, I don't know, just kind of felt watered down. I know, like, the New York Athletic Commission is pretty strict, so I don't know if they could do everything that they really wanted to do. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I, I like, I fucking hate that garbage can spot. I know people love it, you know, with the kendo <laughs> stick. like, <laughs> But it's just so fucking cartoony. Like, I don't know. I would have much rather just see those two teams, like, beat the shit out of each other in the middle of the ring, honestly. No, well, I mean, because they could have yes. a great match without yes. the gimmick stuff. They would perfectly have a good match. But I definitely, I think I liked the visual of Eddie Kingston. It felt right for him to put a trash can on Archer and just I start was, beating the hell out of him. I was happy for Eddie Kingston because I know what a big moment mm-hmm. it was for him. You know, being back in New York and everything, main eventing uh, in front of a hometown crowd, and finally getting the props that are so well-deserved. 
you know, and you know, hopefully he understands just how over he really is. And hopefully AEW yes. understands how over he is. Cause I, I would love to see him like get another title shot somewhere down the line. But speaking of titles, we actually had a huge title change take place on Dynamite tonight. Uh we're of course recording this on Wednesday, as always. Uh Sammy Guevara actually beat Miro for the TNT championship. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to watch this match, but how was it? Uh, you know, it was a really solid match. I had a sneaking suspicion that Sammy was going to actually win the belt. Um, just because it feels like the right time. And it really feels like they're focusing on like the individual members of the inner circle right now. Apparently, mm. it came out earlier this week that Jericho kind of wanted to disband the group. But Khan was kind of like, well, why? Just have you guys go separate ways. You guys can still be a unit, but just have everyone doing their own thing. Um, I don't really like that idea because it just, unless you come out and say, hey, we're kind of doing our own thing right now. And we kind of skipped over this, but, uh, you know, on Rampage uh, the Friday before, we had Hager and Jericho get beat down by America's top team after their tag team mm-hmm. uh, match yes. against the men of the year. And what was glaring to me was not only was like, you know, Sammy and, you know, proud and powerful there, but literally right after that beatdown happened, Santana and Ortiz came out for their match. So they were in the back and they had to know what was going on. So that's a uh-huh. huge continuity <laughs> problem for me. Like, you got to have at least like some kind of like backstage promo where you at least establish that everyone's kind of like, Hey, we're still together, but we're going to kind of do our own thing right now. Or, Hey, I want to fight this fight on my own, you know, stay in the back. Don't interfere. Something like that. There's so many different directions to kind of explain that away, but to have them get their asses kicked, you know, by an outside group, and have no one come out to save them, especially from their own fucking faction, that bothered me. You know, that's something I expect from, like, you know, WWE and their booking lately. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't even think about that, because it is literally the very next match yes. that they show up. So, yeah, that was, that is a and bit then, weird. And then, like, Sammy's out there a little, like, a little time after that, like, doing his whole fucking flashcard, like, bit on the uh. ramp. So, I don't know. That, that, that kind of upset me. But regardless, I was super happy that Sammy won the bout. It was a really good match and everything. It's a fun dynamic with Miro and a smaller guy. Uh, Miro just, he really loves that, like, David and Goliath, like, you know, setup, you know, in his matches. And, you know, both of them shined here. There's a lot of, like, nice spots with Miro, like, snatching Sammy, like, straight out of the air um, while Sammy's trying to do some insane move. Um, you know, I mean, there was a few times where he almost dropped him, but it worked in the long run. Um, it, it mm-hmm. was just a huge moment for Sammy winning that belt. Early in the night, they had MJF cutting a promo that eventually brought out Darby Allen. Uh, but during it, he was talking about how, like, him and, like, three other guys, uh, you know, Sammy, Jungle Boy, and Darby Allen had been there from, like, day one, and how they're really the future of the business and the pillars of AEW, um, you know, which was kind of a strange moment for MJF to admit, but it really showed you, like, how Tony Khan really views those guys, you know, that group of guys. Mm-hmm. And you can completely see it by the way he books them. I mean, it really does feel like those four guys are going to eventually be the biggest superstars on the roster. So you've got to start to wonder, like, is the future now? 
Uh, they had Jungle Boy, you know, lose a match to Adam Cole, but it was a very good match. And Jungle Boy is just growing as a wrestler by leaps and bounds. Like compared to like where he was at, like at the beginning of AEW to now, like he's mm-hmm. hanging with the best of them, honestly. Um, you know, and then just, and then you had like Darby and MJF, like, you know, mixing it up on the show. And it really seems like they're about to work a massive program. I just love how so far AEW always has a payoff for all the time you invest as a fan into like, you know, these young stars. No, exactly. I feel like the only person that wasn't added in that equation just was was Adam Page, who I definitely think will be a major star for the company, but probably not as long as the other I four as well. They just don't include him because it feels like he's already arrived, maybe. You know? Gotcha. Um, where mm-hmm. he already had a name coming into AEW where like Darby, MJF, Jungle Boy, and Sammy were all pretty much like introduced to the world on that mm. first episode. Yeah, but those were definitely some of the biggest moments of the week. If we forgot anything, we apologize. But we're running out of time and we're tired. So <laughs> <laughs> at least WWE started off horror month right with giving us the most horrifying ending for the uh, for the demon I've ever seen. So we can, we can at least give them that credit, right? This is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Well, Christian, Horror Month continues as we count down the top horror video game villains. Also, we'll be talking the season finale of What If? And we'll be reviewing Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And we'll have another week of AEW and WWE to talk about. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make.